0: Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for another opportunity to be together. It is, it's always a joy to see all the faces of those kids as they go back, and it's always a joy to see your faces. It really is a, a blessing to be up here uh, looking out on the people of God gathered. You know, I know that all of us who are at one point or another up on the stage uh, helping to lead the service Uh, have that sentiment as we look out and see the body gathered together. What a blessing to see God praised from so many mouths, to hear his praises sung from so many hearts. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bible this morning to Romans 12. Yes, we have moved out of chapters 9 through 11. For some of you, sad day. Uh, probably not very many, <laughs> uh, but it's a great chunk of Scripture. And I do hope that uh, it, was, it laid some fresh foundation stones for you as you think about God's plan. really was remarkable how much time Paul spent on that topic in his letter to the Romans. A little unexpected if you haven't read Romans before or maybe you just breezed through it lightly. you were probably a little shocked to see uh, so much time spent on that topic. Uh, in a letter that is understood to be the most extensive presentation of the gospel in the New Testament. And it is uh, remarkable that Paul thought that in his presentation of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, that in his presentation of the gospel he saw fit to include so many uh, verses on Israel and the Gentiles and so forth. And actually, as we said last week, It is the Holy Spirit who determined to spend that much time in this letter on that topic. So I do pray that that helped you navigate uh, the Bible a little better. Helps you be a better reader of the Old Testament. I had some ladies come up to me afterwards and say, as they're going through the chronological Bible reading, that they've been in the prophets and they're seeing the themes in the prophets that are present there in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. So I just hope that unlocks uh, in many ways, our reading of God's Word. But today we do come to a new chapter, and today we'll just be in those first two verses, chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And as we've gone through Romans so far, we've come across some very well-known memory verses. It's always exciting uh, to me to come up to a well-known memory verse in uh, an expository series as you're going through a book or a chunk of scripture like we did with the Sermon on the Mount. It's always gratifying to me to study as a a preacher but also as one of the members here as we're collectively going through this material together to see the context and study out the context of some of these well-known memory verses. So we've looked at Romans 3.23 or 6.23 or 8.28 or 10-9. These are some of the very first verses, if you grew up in church, that you remember memorizing, or at least you did back then. Maybe you're a little rusty now. But these are some of the most well-known verses. And today we come to another one of those. It's a set of verses as we come to chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Many people would have these filed away as memory verses. These would at least be verses that could be paraphrased Verses that are preached on or talked about often within the church. And these two verses really do function as a bridge in the larger structure of this letter in the book of Romans. They begin with the word, therefore. And we really understand that this, it reaches back to all of the theology in the letter that we've covered so far. So when we enter chapter 12 and we read, therefore, we are meant to have before us all of chapters 1 through 11. And as we'll see in a little while, Paul is particularly revisiting some of the material that he brought up in chapter 6. So he's got all of this theology in mind going backwards, But these two verses also anticipate all of the ethical teaching that Paul will give in the rest of the letter. So it's bridging the gap between all of that bulky, weighty theological material in 1 through 11, and the very, very practical material that we're going to see, especially in chapter 12, but even into chapters 13 through 15. So it acts as... A bridge. And the title for the sermon this morning is Basic Christian Living. Basic Christian Living. And I think passages like this help us to reorient our thinking by taking us back to the basics of the Christian life. I love texts like this. Because what they do is our minds get cluttered, our minds get confused, we get distracted. And passages like this, it's kind of like Christianity 101, the Christian life in a nutshell. They bring us back to the very basics. And in fact, when I came here as your pastor and one of your pastors in in 2015, I was, you know, obviously you come to a new church and you're thinking, okay, what am I going to do? preach through. And for the first year, that was already decided for me. The church was in the middle of the Gospel of John. So my very first sermon was John 15, picking up. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Wonderful place to start. But we spent the next year going through the Gospel of John. And as we came to the end of the Gospel of John, I'm asking myself, where do we go next? And one of the themes that came to my mind is back to the basics. So just going back In these initial years and just trying to lay the strongest foundation that we possibly can as a church from God's word. And so we looked at the family and Titus, how how grace and holiness come together. We looked at Genesis and the Sermon on the Mount and now here in Paul's letter to the Romans. Going back to the basics helps us to have a firmer foundation. It helps us to fill in the gaps. It helps to reorient us to those things that are essential. And because passages like this take us back to the basics, they tend to have a reviving effect. They tend to reawaken our zeal, to restore our footing, and to rekindle our resolve. And so I pray that today for all of us, as we look at a text like Romans 12, 1 to 2, that these things will happen in us. That our zeal for the Lord will grow. That our realization of what God's called us to will be clarified. And that we will step out more fervently into the Christian life. We do get distracted. and Passages like this call us back. To reality, And what we are reading in Romans 12, 1-2 really is reality. There are a lot of notions about the Christian life, a lot of ideas about how we are to live as Christians uh, that become kind of cliche or they become slogans. And, and we hear these things tossed around. And, and what we, when we come back to God's Word, when we come back to these particulars of Scripture, when we come specifically to a text like this, We understand what reality is for the Christian life. So if you would, please go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read these two verses. Taking it easy on us today with just these two. This is God's Word. It is perfect and profitable for His people. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now and ask that He would guide us, that His Spirit would illuminate His Word for us, that I would preach clearly and that we would understand clearly, and that we would resolve as we hear to also be those who do. So let's ask the Lord for His grace. Father, we thank You that You have been so kind to us as to bring us to this moment. We thank You that we are here among the people of God We thank you that we are under uh, the reading and preaching of your word, that we are under the singing of your praises. God, how blessed we are in this moment. So we give you praise. God, we ask that this morning as we go through these two verses that uh, the teaching would be clear. We pray that our hearts would be reawakened, that this would be, that it would function for us as a kind of revival in our Souls, that we would go back to the basics of the Christian life, that we would see all of life as worship, and that we would be those who rightly discern and carry out your perfect will. God, would you guide us by your Spirit now? And we thank you that you have saved us in Christ, that by his blood, that precious song. There is a fountain filled with blood. That song that we heard earlier, Lord, we thank you that because we are under the flood of Christ's blood, that we will not have to endure the flood of your wrath. We praise you, God, for Christ, for what he did for us on the cross. We thank you that by his wounds we are healed, that he bore our transgressions on the tree, that he bore the curse for us on the tree. We thank you, Father, that all of those ordinances and all of our sins have been nailed to the cross and that through Christ we are clean and we are free and we have an eternal destiny in your presence. God, we pray that this morning we would be filled with celebration and delight, but also Lord, that we would be those who mourn, as Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount, that we would be those who mourn over our sin while we remain in this life knowing that one day we will be comforted. God, we thank you for your word that does all of this in our hearts. We pray that it would do it today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these two verses, we get our basic marching orders for the Christian life. This really is big picture. The foundation, the overarching way of life for The believer. If you get these two things, listen, listen, if you get these two things firmly in place, then all those little details are going to work out. All of those little details are going to naturally and inevitably, not perfectly in this life, but naturally and inevitably, they will flow. And it's the reason why Paul starts here and then he goes to give all of these very specific commands. Later in chapter 12. So two aspects to this overarching way of life. And we're going to look at them in detail. So first, the offering of our bodies. And you'll see them up here on the screen. The offering of our bodies and the transforming of our lives. So let's look first at the offering of our bodies. Go ahead and look with me again at verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Paul is writing to his brothers or his brothers and sisters in Christ. He addresses them in this way warmly. He says uh, to be affectionate to one another, Uh, later on in Romans 12. And that's exactly what he is doing here. He is writing to them warmly and affectionately as his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he is urging them on in the Christian life. He is appealing to them. He is encouraging them and urging them on to live this life that is in Christ Jesus. By calling them brothers, he has also moved their minds away from the distinctions that characterized chapters 9 through 11. Notice that. It's interesting. You know, you come away from reading chapters 9 through 11, and you might be thinking very much either as a Gentile or as a Jew, because everything about chapters 9 through 11 causes you to do that. We come to the beginning of chapter 12. Paul is, as it were, leaving that behind. He's pressing now into the church of Jesus Christ. Where, as he says in Galatians 3.28, in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. All are one in Christ Jesus. He's rallying everyone, Jew and Gentile, back together around their identity in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ, members of his body, the church. One in Christ Jesus. So what does it look like to live in Christ Jesus, well, at the heart of Paul's appeal is this one imperative, this one one command. So yes, Paul is urging, Paul is encouraging, he is appealing, but he is also commanding and directing, he's instructing. This is apostolic instruction from the Lord himself. It comes with the authority of Jesus Christ. And this one imperative that is at the heart of Paul's appeal is simply this, present your bodies as a sacrifice. Living we'll deal with in a moment. Those are the adjectives attached to it, the sacrifice. But present your bodies as a sacrifice. That's the the main idea of verse 1. And it's easy to see through the verse as a whole, but even here, that this is the language of the tabernacle. This is what scholars call cultic language. It's cultic in the sense of it has to do with with the cult, the worship, the the, the place, the sacred place of worship where, where the worship of God took place, the tabernacle and later the temple. It is sacrificial language. It is the language of a priest making an offering. And you go back to Leviticus and you see that. So Paul is calling his readers to act. Notice this both as a priest and as an offering. He is envisioning that his readers are priests and are themselves offerings. We offer and we are the offering. Now don't get confused here and get crossed up and... and, and uh, think that this is in some way conflicting with Christ as our once-for-all sacrifice and offering for us as the, the atonement for our sins. That we're, we're not talking about that being something that's in conflict here. We're talking about what it looks like to live as those who are in this Christ, who in a once-for-all sacrifice paid the penalty for our sins. So we know that Christ himself His one-time sacrifice is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. But when we ask ourselves, what does it look like to live as a Christian? When Paul asks himself, what does it look like to live as a Christian? He goes here. He goes to the sacrificial system. He goes to the tabernacle and the temple. And he conceives of believers as priests... Who are also sacrificial offerings. Now, Paul specifically says here that we are to present or offer our bodies as a sacrifice. Now, some have argued that our bodies is just a stand-in for our persons or our whole selves. And so, you can go out and read commentators and some will say uh, that this is the case. That Paul here just uses the word bodies to stand in for our, our entire selves, our persons. But I think that is to generalize what Paul is saying here. He uses the word bodies. Paul is being specific. He recognizes that we are embodied people. We are human beings who who live in bodies. We are soul and body. He recognizes that we've been renewed on the inside, and yet we carry around what he refers to earlier as these mortal bodies. And you'll notice that this language takes us back to chapter 6. So let me just read a few verses for you. I'm going to let Paul explain himself here by reading a few verses from chapter 6. And you'll kind of understand, I hope you'll understand what he's getting at. So chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then verse 16, if you're in chapter 6, you can look down to verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as members of your body, and we talked about when we, when we looked at those verses, that can involve the mind as well, our entire body, our brain is part of that. So he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And all of this presenting of our members, as Paul describes it in chapter 6, must be done because of what Paul describes in chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. For I delight in the law of God. So this is the experience, what I'm about to read to you at the end, from the end of chapter 7. This is the experience of the Christian. This is what it feels like. This is what it is to be a Christian. He says this, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in our mortal bodies, I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul here associates the mortal body with indwelling sin. What Paul says here in chapter 12 is a restatement of what he's already said in chapter 6. But by doing this, he is showing how fundamental it is to the Christian life. This is basic Christian living. We must present our bodies as a sacrifice. And then Paul goes on to describe this sacrifice as living, holy, and acceptable or pleasing to God. It is living because we must do it continually. It's an ongoing thing as those who carry on our lives in this mortal body. You know, the sacrificial victims in the Old Testament, they were brought to the tabernacle or they were brought to the temple and they were sacrificed one time. And that was it. The sacrificial victim was then dead. The sacrifice was over. But Paul is taking us back to the sacrificial system and he is saying that we are a, to be a living sacrifice. This is ongoing, continual sacrifice. It is holy because it is devoted or consecrated to the Lord, the core idea of holy is to be set apart. Uh, we are our bodies. This sacrifice of our bodies presented to the Lord is to be holy, and it is meant to be pleasing—a pleasing and acceptable aroma to the Lord. We read this throughout the uh, the law. We read this in Leviticus. The, these offerings are made, and when they are made rightly according to God's prescription then they are pleasing to the Lord. And it's the imagery of the, the, the scent, the smoke rising up. And, and the Lord, it's, it's not, the Lord doesn't have nostrils, but it is, it is God smelling, as it were, the, the pleasingness of this sacrifice. It is right, it is good. And he says, ah, like we do when we smell Indian food, for example, <laughs> or fill in the blank, whatever it is, for you. But it is a pleasing and acceptable aroma to the Lord. So let me just stop here for a moment and consider, I think, some important implications for us. As so we, you know, This is kind of dense material as we think about this in the sacrificial system. So let me just give a few implications for us that we can take with us as we leave today. So first, at the end of the day, and keep this in mind, this is not Typically, I think, how we think about it, the Christian life. At the end of the day, it is what we do with our bodies that demonstrates what's going on in our hearts. Let me say that again. It is what we do with our bodies that shows what's going on in our hearts. So let's do away with any kind of sentimental emotional-only kind of internal sort of religion that just doesn't make its way outside. It just really doesn't make its way to the external. Yes, we know from the Sermon on the Mount in particular that true religion, that, that true gospel faith, that true honoring the Lord concerns the heart. And yet, what does James tell us? This is true religion. True religion is what? To keep yourself unstained from the world and to care for orphans and widows. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you know, someone like Luther comes along and he calls James an epistle of straw because it, it it, it doesn't quite go with this lofty gospel language that you see from Ephesians and Romans. But isn't it interesting that James... The Lord's half-brother, an apostolic writer, says that true religion is this. And he talks about what you do with your hands. He talks about what you do with your money. He talks about what you do with your, with your mouth, your tongue. He talks about the tongue a lot. He talks about what you do with your feet. Worship showing up on the outside. This is what's going on in the heart. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. All kinds of fuzzy things can be happening to you on the inside, but unless this shows up in real life, what's going on on the inside, however fuzzy it may be, is not this. It's not gospel religion. It's not in Christ living. That's the first implication. Second, This requires perseverance because it will never end in this life. I should say in this life, not never, because it will end. But not as long as you are breathing in this life with your lungs. This requires much perseverance. And it tells us, those of you who are older, you think you've arrived. You think you have arrived. You never outgrow this. What Paul is laying out here is something for the young and the very, very old. We never outgrow what Paul is calling us to hear. And I am convinced in that, that a lot of believers, as they, as they grow up and they get more, more knowledge, they've been in the church longer, there is a tendency to kind of settle in to rest on our laurels, to rest on years and years of faithful ministry, years and years of knowledge, and to forget that we are called daily to be a living sacrifice right up until death. Till death do you part. A living sacrifice. You will never outgrow this. And you'll never go on vacation from this. You'll go to the beach. You'll go to the Disney World We'll go wherever, but you'll still be doing this. Third, this brings what is holy or what is sacred and puts it right down into the messiness of everyday life. Isn't it fascinating, Jeremy? If you would have lived in ancient Israel and you would have been around the tabernacle or the temple, it would have been pretty awe-inspiring. It would, have been, it would have been pretty awesome. I mean, the tabernacle was not really something all that great to look at, but when you considered that, it's, that everyone surrounded it, and when you considered what God did to manifest His power and His judgment there and His grace in that place, and then when you get to the temple, these amazing structures what Paul does here, this is, this is amazing. What Paul does here is he takes all the sacredness packed into the tabernacle and packed into the temple. All that saturated sacredness and he disperses, his, disperses it out in all of the little tiny affairs of our daily living. Every moment, every act, every thought becomes temple worship. It becomes sacred. It becomes holy. Christians, we are always in the temple because we are the temple. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God, There is for the Christian an explosion, a shattering of the notion of a line between the, the secular and the sacred. Politicians talk about how you can, have, uh, you can have one view on abortion and then you can have a different public policy on abortion. That's nonsense. That's nonsense to the Christian worldview because in every single dot, of life, we are to present our bodies as a sacrifice because we are the temple of God. Listen to the way the early church father John Chrysostom describes it. He's very practical. Sounds a lot like John the Baptist. You know, people talk about what is repentance. I say, Well, go and listen to John preach. Go, go read it in the Gospels. John says, you know, you used to do this, do it no more. Used to do that, do it no more. This is what John Chrysostom says about this sacrifice. And how is the body, it may be said, how is the body to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing and it has become a sacrifice. Let your tongue speak nothing filthy and it has become an offering. Let your hand do no lawless deed, and it has become a whole burnt offering. Not a single part of our members is excluded from this picture. Do you see how this makes life utterly exciting? Just think about that. Life is truly exciting. Life should never be boring because every moment of life and every action within life is this. Worship to our holy, omnipotent, infinite God. So now that we've looked at the heart of this verse, we need to sandwich it in with what comes before and after. So I wanted to look at the, at the center of it, and now let's look at what comes before and after. So first, what comes before? One word, mercy. Mercy. By the mercies. of of God or the as the NIV puts it in view of God's mercy in view of God's mercy dot 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 in view of God's mercy going back to the beginning of the letter in view of justification by faith alone by grace alone in view of union with Christ in view of new life in the spirit in view of our eternal hope that we read about at the end of Romans 8, in view of God's salvation plan to create vessels of mercy, in view of all the riches that Paul has in mind when he breaks out in praise in verse 33 of chapter 11, all the riches, in view of all of those riches, in view of all of that, present your bodies. That's what Paul's saying. In view of all of that, keeping all of that in mind, having all of that right there on your frontal lobe, present your bodies as a sacrifice. You know, this is the greatest motivator in the universe. Greatest motivator in the universe. When we consider what God has done for us in Christ. Yes, the Bible talks to us about being legitimate. About not being found phony, it gives warnings, dire warnings. Talks to us about discipline as we as we read the Lord's Supper passage. You know we uh, we we will we will face discipline in the Christian life, and uh, Christians are warned not to do X, Y, and Z because if they do, they will be disciplined in sometimes very firm ways. Those things do motivate us, and of course, we are also told of rewards that we will have in heaven. Those things are also meant to motivate us. But there is no motivator in the universe like the motivation that is provided by the mercies of God. How much do you steep yourself in what God's done for you in Christ? The mind that is constantly going over and over and over again, chewing the cud of all of God's riches of mercy is the mind that is going to be quick and ready to obey these commands. So that's first, that's what comes before. Second, what comes after, Paul sums up the verse by saying that this is our spiritual worship. And I think a better translation for the word spiritual here would be rational. At the core, that's what this, it's not the typical word for spiritual, which Paul could have used here, but The word itself means rational, and so this has given rise to lots of debate over what Paul means here. It could mean rational in the sense of reasonable. This is your reasonable service. So in that sense, Paul would be saying, in view of God's mercy, what else would you do? Hello? What else would you do? This is your reasonable service, given all that God has done for you in Christ Why? How could you not do this? This is your reasonable service. So that could be what Paul has in view here, or it could be rational in the sense of internal or spiritual. Uh, And why it's translated that way here, it could be understood as of the mind of our internal workings. We present our bodies not in a ceremonial way, but in an authentically thoughtful way. And so in this sense, it would be meant to offset. We're presenting our bodies externally through an authentic internal motivation and desire and thinking. Either way, either way, it's worship. Either way, It is worship. And not just worship generally, but the word Paul uses here for worship is the word for temple service. It is the word for dealing with the holy. Remember, in the Old Testament, God took an entire tribe and set them apart for the service of the tabernacle and the temple. That's how important it was. That's how holy it was. That's how needful it was. Paul is using the same idea here. This is our worship. This is our service. So, a summary this is how we worship. (laughs) This is how we worship God. So, maybe you think worship, you think singing. That's part of it, but that's not what we read here. You think worship, you think uh, going through some sort of service. And of course, we call this corporate worship, and there's reasons for that. But I want you to focus in on this specific understanding of worship. This is how we worship God, by presenting our bodies in every situation of life, day and night, in every tiny interaction, whether we are alone or with other people. Presenting our members, the members of our bodies to him as a sacrificial offering. And to do this in light of his mercy, that is Christianity or Christian living 101. That is what it looks like to live the Christian life. So Let's go on to our second point now as Paul goes through and we'll look at another aspect in verse 2. So secondly, the transforming of our lives. We looked at the offering of our bodies. Now let's look at the transforming of our lives. By the way, it struck me this week, we have a lot of different motivations for the things that we do, the way we relate to our loved ones, the way we relate to um, our spouses, the way we relate to our children, the way we relate to Christians or those in our workplace. And what I would encourage us to do is to begin to replace systematically all of those motivations with the very explicit priority motivation of, I want to please the Lord. I want to please the Lord. Why am I doing this with my children? I want to please the Lord. Why am I I speaking this way to this person who's driving me crazy or irritating me at work? Because I want to please the Lord. Because I'm presenting right now my body as a sacrifice to the Lord. And you will begin to be able to look through or past all the imperfections and all the frustrating things about the the fallen sinful human beings in your life, which you're included in that. We all are. You'll begin to be able to look past all of that because you are serving Christ. You're serving God. You're offering your tongue and your hands and your feet to the Lord. So let's look at verse 2, the transforming of our lives. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The heart of Paul's appeal in verse 2 is to be transformed. Just as it was in verse 1, to present our bodies as a sacrifice here, it is to be transformed. The present tense of these verbs tells us that this is an ongoing norm in the Christian life. It is normal for us to be in a state of being transformed. This is what it is to be a Christian. And interestingly, it is the word used for the transfiguration, of Christ. He's he's transfigured, he's transformed before the apostles as they're looking on, as they're looking at him, seeing his glory. And and we get this kind of connection in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where Paul talks about beholding the glory of the Lord. He says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we're going to see this in a moment a little bit more but at the very least what that means is that it's it's as we take in the glory of Christ the riches of Christ that we will become more and more like Christ Christ has to be our meditation Christ himself in all of his splendor, in all of his transformedness, as the disciples looked upon him in his glory, his exalted glory. We look upon him with our eyes, with our hearts. We, we hear the words about him in the gospels and the epistles and even the prophets in the Old Testament about him. And we meditate on his glory and we are drawn to be more and more like him. We are transformed into his glory likeness. So let me just say this, Christian, you are being transformed. You may not feel like that sometimes, but you are, as a Christian, being transformed. But I want you to notice here that there is no room for passivity. I think a lot of Christians think passively about the Christian life. And, you know, we kind of beat up in chapter 6 on the whole idea of let go and let God. And you understand what people mean when they say that. You know, on the, at, at the best case. You understand what people mean when they say let go and let God. You understand that. But... The idea of let go and let God breeds a kind of passivity in the Christian life. It's almost just a, a sort of a, a meditation kind of thing where you just sit there and you, you still yourself, you quiet yourself, and then God just sort of drops things. He just starts dropping things on you. Holiness and sanctification, growth, just drops them on your lap. And there you go, you received it. Paul doesn't allow us to go there in this verse, a passive kind of Christian life. Paul gives this as a command. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say you will be transformed. Just wait on it. Hang tight. It's gonna happen. We get other verses like that, that telling us that we're going to be transformed. But here, it is issued as a command. Be transformed. It is something that we must Do. There is no sitting on the sidelines just waiting for God to work. The Christian life is fervent, it is active, it is intense, it is a zealous kind of life. But Paul doesn't just leave us with this main command to be transformed. He gives us all of this other teaching surrounding it. And we see three things as we come to a close this morning, as we finish up, I want to look at these three things surrounding Paul's command in verse 2 to be transformed. So here they are first, the alternative, second, the means, and then third, the goal. The alternative, the means, and finally, the goal. So, first, the alternative. We are to be transformed instead of being conformed to this world. Most commentators see these verbs as synonyms. These two verbs, be conformed and, and be transformed. If we are not actively being transformed, listen to this, Christian. If you are not actively being transformed as an active endeavor then we can be assured that we are being conformed. If you are not being transformed, you are being conformed. There is no such thing as neutral ground in the Christian life. You don't just stop and, well, I'm not being transformed right now. I'm not seeking that. kind of taking some time away from that, but I'm also not being conformed to the world. I'm just kind of hanging out here and I'm going to press on in a moment. Kind of like a gas station on a long trip. You're still on the trip but you just took a, took a moment to, to rest. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way in the Christian life. The alternative is you will get sucked into the world. As quickly as you let go of being transformed, you will be sucked into the way of the world. And the word here for world is the word for age. That's the word Paul chooses to use, the word for age, sometimes translated world. Galatians 1.4 speaks of the present evil age, this time now. By the way, that's, just a, that's a nice calibration, isn't it? We are living in the present evil age. So for those of us who just so, find the world so tantalizing, all of its sparkly bits, All of the allurements of the world, all the pursuits of the world, know this, be reminded of this, that it is called the present evil age. And by the way, it is ruled by the God of this world, Satan. The prince of the power of the air. So what does this being conformed to the world look like, this alternative to being transformed Well, 1 John 2.16 tells us, brings us back to Eden. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Man, we all know what those three things feel like in the soul. How alluring each of those things are. We have all been Eve many times in that moment. Where she looks upon the fruit and she sees that it is pleasing in all of these ways. And she reaches out and she eats. We have all been there. We are there in our lives. And all of these things, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So John gives us a summary of worldliness Worldliness is to live for these allurements, just as Eve found herself in the garden. And what's going to happen to this world with all of its allurements? First John 2:17. and the world is passing away. And the world is passing away along with its desires. but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All the most beautiful people on the planet are going to end up as rotting corpses. Think about that. The next time you're tempted to lust, the next time that you're tempted to make sure you're so very nicely dolled up or manicured so that others will look upon you, think of that. It all is passing away. And the lust of it But he who does the will of God abides forever. The world, it's going. It's just a matter of time. Right now it looks nice like that flower that comes up. But it's a fading flower. The world is a fading flower. Our lives in the world are a fading flower. And all the pleasures of this life fade. but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So what is the world? One commentator puts it so nicely. He says it is that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time current in the world which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitute a most real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment of our lives we inhale again inevitably to exhale. So we have to ask ourselves first, do we recognize this is happening? Or are we just, moving along in life naively, stupidly, just, just like, we're on a, like we're on an escalator, just sort of moving along, and we're just breathing in the world, just sucking it in, and it's covering our lungs. It's covering everything inside of us, and then we're puffing it back out on everyone around us. Worldliness, being conformed to this So let me just ask you: In what ways are you being conformed to this world? Those things I just read earlier, all the opinions, thoughts, and speculations, and aspirations, and dreams, and everything of the world—is that where your head's at? Is that where your heart's at? Listen to the apostle: Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And that leads us to our second uh, second point under this one: the means. The means. Be transformed, Paul says, by the renewal of your mind. How? Okay, Paul. I don't want to be conformed to the world, so how can I be transformed so that I'm not conformed to the world? And Paul's answer is, by means of the renewal of your mind. It's really this simple. How we think determines how we live. We all meditate. Everybody meditates. It's a matter of what we meditate on we either meditate on the law of the lord day and night psalm 1 or we meditate on the things of this world if you could put all your thoughts in the last week out here for all to see on a table by the way christ is going to do that one day he's going to expose everything everywhere in everyone all your thoughts right out on the table what are the meditations of your heart We either spend our days letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly or letting the world dwell in us richly. If the gospel of Christ, the values of Christ, the kingdom of Christ are not dwelling in us richly, the content of these glories are not swimming around in our minds, swimming around in our hearts, coming out of our minds, then other things will Fill the vacuum. The world will dwell in us richly. How many among us this morning, this very morning, have the world dwelling in them richly? Be revived. Be revived by these words today. Third, we see the goal as we finish up this morning. We've seen the alternative to being transformed, the means and now, finally, the goal. Notice that there is a goal to all of this. Paul doesn't just say, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Period. And then he moves on to verse 3, and what he's going to say in those following verses about gifts and so forth. He doesn't do that. He's got more to say here. There is a goal to all of this. We renounce the world. We seek renewed minds. We are transformed so that we can accurately discern God's will. And that will, because it is God's will, is good and acceptable and perfect. How is it that we come to know God's will? This way. And that itself, knowing God's will and doing God's will, that which pleases him, that which is perfectly in accord with his nature and with his holy law, is the goal of being transformed. you see how practical this is? So here's a final point for us. Stop trying to find God's will for your life. There's so much silliness involved in that endeavor. And there is so much self-centeredness involved in that endeavor. How many Christians are walking around Begging God to show them His will for their lives in an effort to worship the idol of self-fulfillment. Literally praying their idolatry to God when they should be worshiping Him. When we should be worshiping Him. Stop focusing on yourself. Your dreams and your fulfillment in life your happiness and all of that. Instead of trying to find God's will for your life in all these little specific fulfillment ways, instead spend your time presenting your bodies as a living, holy and pleasing sacrifice to God. And turn away from the world, choosing instead to have your minds washed in the word of God and then in every way in every circumstance, not just whether or not you should make this investment or that one, or whether you should go to this college or that one, or marry this person or not, not just in all of these little ways, but I'm talking about in a robust way, in a Christ-honoring-all-of-life-for-the-glory-of-God way. The will of God will be made plain. And in all those little ways. We will see, we will discern what it is that honors God the most. You know, another thing to consider about seeking God's will, and by the way, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't pray to the Lord about all these decisions. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I think that there is so much of a fulfillment idol that guides all of this talk about God's will. God's will so that I can be all that I can and have all that I need and and just, just be fulfilled in life. It comes from the prosperity gospel movement which has tainted all of Christianity, by the way, around the world, especially in our materialistic American culture. So let me just encourage you with this last thing. Often we want God's will without this pathway. We want God's will. We want God to show us what to do, don't we? But we don't want to present our bodies as a sacrifice to God. Oh, we don't want to spend our days and nights meditating on his word so that it dwells in us richly so that we'll be transformed and be able to discern rightly God's will. We just want what God can give us. We just want it now. We just want this and we're going to pray because we're Christians and God's supposed to hear us. I mean, he's our father. Abba, Abba, do this for me. No, that's not Christianity. That's not the basic Christian life. This is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Where we bypass mind renewal and life transformation, we are left only with worldliness and a lack of discernment. That's where you're left. Seeking God's will without these things leads to worldliness and a lack of discernment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these exhortations from your word this morning. We pray that you would cause them to take root in our lives. We pray that You would use this time in your word today to reawaken us, to call us back from the world. The image of Pilgrim's Progress comes to mind, Lord, to call us back on the the path to the celestial city. Lord, be with us. Help us to truly seek your will in this way laid out for us by the apostle. Help us live this basic Christian life believing that all that we need to do and say and think with the remainder of our lives will flow out of this. This is ground zero. This is the spring. This is the very base for all of it. Father, would you help us by your spirit to apply these words? Would you work to apply them to our hearts? We ask you now to be with us as we participate in the Lord's Supper, this very sacred time, Lord, where we, we get to see visualized for us the gospel of Christ. Lord, would we leave this sacred moment and remember that all of life is sacred as we saw today. And would this time communing together with each other and with Christ, would it strengthen us for the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.